all right. <clears throat> like I said, we're going to start this new series. Um, one of the things I would say about this series that we're, we're doing, um, and I think I've said this kind of leading up the series, but I just want it to be heard clearly, is that if this, if, if this I don't want this series to be like the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, right? Or the millennials are ruining everything, or Trump is the Antichrist, or Pelosi's, you know, a false prophet. I don't want to kind of dive into any of that stuff. What I want to do is I hope to make some careful observations about what's happening in our culture, what's happening in the world around us, right? And then how they intersect with our confidence in the kingdom of God, right? One of my favorite sayings is that we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, right? And so even though we look around us at different things, you and I, we reside, our primary residence is in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. We look at culture and say, okay, this is what's happening in culture. This is what's happening in the world and around us. But, you know, it's not falling apart, right? Trump isn't the Antichrist. Um, You know, the millennials aren't ruining the nation. Like all those kind of false narratives that we hear. I just want to say, hey, we live in the kingdom of God and what's happening around us. Um, so if the teachings, if these teachings over the next couple of weeks become that kind of whiny, negative, um, unconstructive, just talk to me. I really, really want to avoid that. I've been listening to a, a podcast. One of my favorite podcasts is by a, a professor of mine, and he did a podcast series. It was called Why the Church is Sick. And I listened to a few episodes, but it just kind of had that tone of like, things are falling apart and it's terrible. And I couldn't listen. Even though I love this podcast, I love this professor it was just kind of, it took that tone where it was like, oh gosh, you know what I mean? It was just like things are getting bad and it's going from bad to worse. And I had to, so if, if this teaching starts kind of like going into that unhelpful, critical stage, let's just talk about that and, and we'll take a break and we'll go back into Titus or Ruth or Esther or something along those deals, okay? Um, anybody ever heard that phrase? Is that cool? You guys be honest with me if, if, if you're just like, hey, Eric, you're just like blasting everything. I don't want to do that. I just want to talk about it honestly. Um, uh, who's heard of that phrase, fish out of water, right? I was actually thinking about getting a fish today and putting it here and taking the fish out of water and showing you what happens with the fish out of water. I thought this would be just an easier example of a fish out of water right here, right? So um, it's funny when you Google search fish out of water, like that popped up. I didn't even think about that. Yes. Um, yes. He, yeah, you might need to go home and Netflix all of all the... <laughs> Um, so obviously we know kind of Will Smith and, and the whole um, Fresh Prince. What a great TV show. Um, yeah. Um, and then, you know, if we were to kind of, yeah. By the way, thank you for embracing the feedback that I gave about cultural references and like the mid-2000s and pushing us back towards the 80s and 90s. Yes, yes, we're all... I was at a, you know, it's, okay, this is a total tangent. I was at a, we were at that wedding last weekend for my friend, and my friend's 26, and it's just interesting because the weddings that we, like, we had a certain genre and music and songs that were popular to us, and now, like, this younger generation, the music and the songs that were popular to them, you know, probably, like, when they were in their high school, so, like, Soldier Boy, what was that one? So, like, was, like, one of the songs they were, and I was, like, that just totally was not on my... Sorry. Okay, so fish out of water. I get all... We'll, we'll keep the 80s and 90s references going because that seems to be where we... Um, and then, obviously, you know, if we were to flip that and say, well, what's, what is a fish in water would probably be Miss Ashley Banks, right? She just kind of grows up in this Bel Air and has no idea and has this kind of clueless uh, mentality. But this fish in water, which you're, um, you're kind of overly familiar with your situation to the point where you don't even know that you're in that situation, 
right? It's kind of that we, another euphemism might be, this is just the air we breathe, right? So for us, the air we breathe and, and the kind of the water that surrounds us, I would say, is this word, it's called secularism. Anybody ever heard of this word, right? Now, typically when you hear this word, um, we often think of it in these kind of categories, right? Maybe you've heard of it in this category. There is Christian music and there is... Secular music, right? There are Christian movies, and there are, come on, you guys are just sleeping this morning, right? There is Christian art, look at that beautiful Thomas Kincaid sculpture on the subscription plan, and there is secular art, right? So we have this kind of, oftentimes the way that we hear about this word secular or secularism, it, we, we kind of think about it in these two categories where there's like the Christian category, right? And then over on the other side is, is maybe the anti-Christian category. Maybe it's the, um, the, the atheist category. There is that new term that is used, anti-theist, where people are, are kind of not only, um, are you an atheist to say that, I don't believe in God, but the term anti-theist, which means I am against or I am anti-anything that religion is, right? So we often think about here's the line. On one side's all the Christian stuff, all the accepted stuff. On the other side's the secular stuff. Um, and that's kind of how secular it works in our culture. Um, I think it's a little bit of a misappropriation of secularism. It's what I want to talk about this morning. So let's place it back in this word secularism back in its context. There is a philosopher, and he's actually from up in Canada. He's still alive, a guy named Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor wrote a book called A Secular Age. Now, this book um, is kind of been a, a profound, it's kind of been one of those watershed books for kind of what we do and how we understand, again, the air we breathe, the water that we swim in. Um, Taylor's book, and I will say this, Taylor's book in itself is way above my intellectual level. Um, it is a, it's way above, but... I think the ripples that his ideas and his book have had are so apparent in all of our culture. I would compare it to this. I don't know if this is a good analogy or not. I would compare Taylor's book to runway fashion. So runway fashion, when you look at it and you're like, what is that girl wearing? Like some sort of a weird peacock headdress and there's, you know, all sorts of, and you sometimes randomly see runway stuff and it's just so strange and bizarre. But what happens is the things that happen on the runway the patterns, the textures, the colors, um, the fabrics is actually what ends up being kind of pushed to normal everyday fashion. Am I right on that? Right? Um, so that's kind of what, what happens. So again, with Taylor's book, right, it's this highly intellectual, scholarly book. But what has happened is his book has rippled out into culture and it's, it's how we kind of understand, again, this kind of secular age is kind of the age that we live in. Most of us kind of have a vague assumption about it, but we have no idea what this, this real secularism is other than there's, well, hey, there's a Christian music and there's a secular music, right? But it's far more nuanced than that. So here's secularism. Secularism, I think, at its heart is a subtraction story, okay? God, the divine, sacred religion is subtracted from the meta-narrative, right? Kind of the overarching narrative that humanity lives by. All of the religious, divine, sacred, all of that is kind of, is kind of taken out, right? And now we live in what uh, Taylor would call an a-religious society, right? Where rational, 
unbiased scientific knowledge is kind of the basis for our narrative, right? And I think we would all kind of look around and be like, yeah, that kind of feels like the air that we live in, right? Or the air that we breathe, the, the water that we're swimming in, right? We kind of have, we see religion being sucked out more and more, and we kind of see that rational, unbiased scientific knowledge ends up being the basis for our universe becomes our meta-narrative. So again, using an equation, we might say the original equation might be like God plus man, one plus one kind of equals two. I'm going to come back to this equation a little bit later too. But now we kind of have that one plus, and we've taken that God equation out, right? We've just said, hey, he's been subtracted from this narrative, and, and other things are being inserted into that. Again, I'll come back to that in a little bit, right? So the kind of the subtraction story is the main kind of narrative that secularism pushes, right? Now, a couple myths, or a couple myths about this, this kind of secular, this, this secular story, right? The first myth is this. There's this giant myth of Christian history. I, I want to give credit down here before I read this quote to a guy named Mark Sayers who's just done so much work on this. There's a phenomenal podcast if you really, really want to go deeper on this. It's called This Cultural Moment. Um, and so if you want to dive into more of this, um, so many examples, stories, narratives. He's an Australian guy too, so you get to listen to his beautiful Australian accent all day long or as long as you want. It's kind of like the Crocodile Dundee reading to you. But Sarah says this, he says, the secular myth centers on, on the ideal that at some undetermined high point of church influence, the West was thoroughly Christian. It is imagined that at this high point, churches were filled with devoted believers and society was filled with Christian values and institutions. This period of strength is usually envisioned as occurring during the Middle Ages. And then I put in parentheses, I think as America, we kind of think that kind of founding of America. Right? We think like, oh, when America was founded on the Christian values, right? Um, a pinnacle from which the Christian faith has since experienced the decline. Now, if you're a visual learner like me, it would look a little bit like, uh, it would be like, oh, look at the Middle Ages, man. The churches, they were filled, they were packed, everybody was there. And now it's a little bit like this, right? This is kind of this myth, right? If you're a visual learner, it would look like this, <laughs> where at some point in history, you know, again, as Sayers would say, Maybe the Middle Ages, some point in the 1400s or 1500s, right? The cathedral's packed. Everybody's level of faith and belief was to the moon, right? And then we've just seen this steady decline. Oh, we had this peak when America was formed, right? And the Christian fathers and the Constitution and everybody was so good. And then what we've just seen is further and further decline, right? And the thing about this is it really ends up being just a myth, right? There is no high point um, in history from which Christianity has declined, right? Christianity at its heart has always been a fringe movement, right? It's always been kind of an anti-cultural movement. It's been a movement that has kind of been, been known to operate not at the heart of culture, not, and again, when we, by the way, when Christianity moves into that kind of, we talked about the power, wealth, influence index, when we move into that, it actually undermines what we're all about, right? So Christian history um, ends up, Again, there, there never was just a golden age, right? This is just a giant myth. And we think about this. Anybody ever think about this? Like, oh, yeah, there was that time when the cathedrals were packed. There was that time when everybody was Christian. There was a, it's, just a, it's just a misnomer. It's just a lie. If you just do any kind of look at history, you'll be like, yeah, history since day one has just been messed up, right? Since Adam and Eve. It's just been messed up. Um, well, maybe Adam and Eve, maybe that would have been the pinnacle before they fell. But after that fall, we've just, we've just been a mess, right? Um, the second kind of piece in, this, in this, these myths of secularism 
is secularism will teach us that progress will lead to utopia. So again, in this equation, right, God, the divine, the sacred has been subtracted and what has stepped into that void is progress. Now, I'm using the evolution of the iPhone here to represent our progress, right? Because if anything represents progress to us in the West, it is the new iPhone. Um, but we think about that, right? And it could, be tech, it could be technology. It seems like technology becomes a big one as we have more and more technology and greater technology. And hey, hey, 5G, everyone. Once 5G gets here, now we're really going to be able to get on it, right? And it seems like technology, it could be economics, right? It could be, hey, if we get the right economic system in place. It could be human rights, if we can create the, the right kind of human rights. It, it could be social justice. It could be political power. It could be national independence. But there is this, this argument that progress, right, man plus progress will finally give us the utopia, the happiness, the end narrative. Now, in our culture, in our world, the left would argue it, um, this progress, maybe through government intervention, maybe through health care for all, maybe through free tuition, open borders, tolerance, right? And then the right comes along and says, no, that's going to take us backwards. And the right says, we're going to go to progress through free market, capitalism, private insurance, survival of the fittest, tribalism, national security. But what are they both promising? Progress, right? It's the same bridge, just different lanes. They're saying that if we can get over to that other side of the bridge, over on the other side, that's where utopia is. That's where we're going to get along as as humanity. If we can just move there, that's where it is, right? And so, again, in, in, in this secular narrative, the progress, the advancement, ends up being, ends up being, um, the, the way to happiness, to joy, that we will finally flourish as a human society. Right? Now, along with this secular narrative, one of the things that they're going to say is that religion blocks utopia. Right? Religion, churches, um, faith-based organizations, those sorts of things, were the ones that are in the way of this, this kind of movement towards utopia. Right? Sarah says that utopia will be accelerated as religion, primitive superstition, erodes away in the, face of an un, in, in the face of undeniable facts of a post-Christian society, right? And so if we take a look at how often the church or, or religious organizations have taken views on, say, things like stem cell research, abortion, LGBTQ rights, climate change, the religious perspectives often associated with this, right, these issues, and again, we look at all those issues and we say, oh yeah, you guys are the ones that are blocking us. You guys are in the way. If you guys and your dumb superstitions and your religious and your primitive ideas would get out of our way, we could progress and move beyond this, right? And we even see this, um, we, we see this just kind of all over the world. And what happens too, and, and maybe you've kind of picked up on this, right? What happens with this is secularism, this is really important, secularism ends up functioning as a new form of religion, doesn't it? Right? Secularism ends up functioning as a new form of religion. So we see great things like this. Like here's a book that was called The Book of Jobs, and Steve Jobs is presented here as some sort of an icon of Jesus, right? Technology bringing us that salvation that we look for. 
I don't know uh, where this, this was, I don't know where this was, but here was a sign that Mr. Donald Trump was chosen by God to lead America. Um, Mr. Obama ran his campaign on hope, right? Progress on the future. Um, we see the tribalism in, in um, we have all these ways like, hey, this is going to, once we get out of the EU, right, that is going to lead us to the future. If the stock market just keeps climbing up and to the right, that's, so we end up seeing how all these things end up functioning in a very religious manner, right? Um, secularism, Sarah says this, Sarah says that secularism wants the kingdom, it wants that utopia without the king, right? Doesn't it? It just, it says we're going to get to that utopia, we're going to get to that stage, we're going to make it there, we're going to progress there, we're going to advance there, but it doesn't want the king, it doesn't want that Christ that's associated with it. Um, another quote by a guy named Steven Pinker, and Steven Pinker is a guy from Harvard. This guy's not a, a Christian guy at all, but he says that current Western society is the fairest, most equal, peaceful, and moral sphere to ever exist in human history, right? Um, and yet, I would say this. We see that tribalism, economic inequality, social division remain ever so present. They even thrive, and they're even expanding, aren't they? Right? We're seeing the tribalism not only in our own nation, we're seeing the tribalism in the European Union, we're seeing the economic, I want to talk about these in a second, but we're seeing all these things happen. And not just that they're remaining the same, but they're actually, they're growing larger. Right? Um, so for example, tribalism. Uh, and we think really specifically about, in our nation, how, how divided have we become red and blue? Right? Have we seen a time like this maybe in, in, in current history? There was this remarkable photo. I think this photo so encapsulates our, our tribalistic nature of our nation, right? And this happened this week. This was when Ms. Pelosi stood up to Mr. Trump, and, and they were having this giant argument in the White House, and they're going back and forth and yelling at each other and demeaning one another. Um, and, and this, to me, to me, this is just, it's, it's like, hey, there's the red and there's the blue. And what happens with tribalism, too, and I'm, this is a quote from another guy. But what happens with tribalism is that our, our interests are reduced and measured by those sharing your history, your tradition, your ideology. But here's what's interesting about tribalism as we talk about it. You need an enemy to feel right with your party, right? So tribalism isn't just saying, hey, you know, I think that this church is wonderful and we love this church and, and this church is great. But tribalism would be the narrative that um, it would be this kind of shared mentality. What's the church on Santa Barbara? Um, the Baptist church. Grace. Uh, Grace. Grace Baptist. Those guys are really messing up Christianity. And we need to get rid of them. And it's all their fault that Christianity has gone, is, is going wrong. And, and just having that kind of mental um, ideology in our church, tribalism is that idea saying, the problem is those guys, and we need to have that enemy to feel right with ourselves. We can't just sit here and say, hey, we got a good thing going on here. we got a nice church, you know, and we're just here to worship Jesus. But that, that ideology, that shared mental map of it's those guys, they're the ones holding us back, right? The left is saying that to the right. The right is saying that to the left. And we further, we're, we're watching this. I think that we're really watching the further and further separation, right? And we're just watching our country being more and more torn apart. Again, we see that tribalism in Brexit. We see that tribalism all over the European Union. Um, we're watching us build bigger borders along our wall. 
We're watching this national security become the number one interest. You see it happening very specifically in a country like Germany. Um, but this idea of tribalism, right? And again, utop or, or secularism saying, hey, progress is going to lead us there, right? And what are we seeing? It's not getting us there. You think about economic inequality too. <clears throat> Here's something that's fascinating about economic inequality. They just came out with this just a couple, maybe a week or two ago. And I know that you guys can read this perfectly clearly. <laughs> It's so tiny. Here's, here's what this map means. If you're making $20,000 in 65, you're still making about $20,000 now, right? Oh, Jesse, you put on your sunglasses, that help? <laughs> um, if you're making about $60,000 in 65, you're making almost $140,000 now. There's a, a, an index that they actually measure economic inequality. It's called the Gini Index, G-I-N-I. -I. They just released a report that said, our economic equality at the moment is at an all-time high. It's never been higher. So in other words, the people on the top have more and more and more and more, and the people on the bottom have less and less and less and less. And so you see the people who are the big monies, do you see them growing, 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 right? And you see those on the bottom just staying flat, 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 right? So our economic inequality as a nation, it's, first off, it's the highest in the world. There is no other nation that has as much economic inequality as our nation, right? And second, it's at the highest level that it's ever been, right? So we have growing tribalism. We have growing economic inequality. Um, we have something, we have growing social division. Now, this was just absolutely fascinating. I want to share this about this. This is happening up in Quebec. It's called Bill 21. Um, and Bill 21 says this. In Quebec, um, there's this bill that's being passed through their kind of legislative system, and the bill is that if you hold a public office, right, if you're a, I'm not sure how, exactly how their government works, but say a councilman or a state senator or a mayor or you work in the, in the government office or whatever, if you hold a, a public office, you are not allowed to wear any sort of religious, um, anything religious, right? No religious symbols. You can't wear any religious symbols. Now, you might think, like, okay, like, that, that means, like, if you wore a cross, right, and you were a mayor or you were a public official, the law would say that's illegal for you to wear that cross. The real crux of what's happening right now, the thing that's really um, kind of taken the story and made it a real news headline, is, there, is that there's a particular Muslim woman involved in the middle of this who works for the government who wants to wear her hijab, her religious headdress, and this bill would make it illegal for her to wear her headdress, right? So this is kind of the narrative that secularism says because secularism is saying it's the religious people that are getting in the way. And if we can remove that superstition, that religion, that backwards thinking, then we can really make progress in our culture, right? But anybody who just has a normal head on their shoulder says, wait a second, that, that just doesn't sound right. That just doesn't feel right, right? So... Um, whatever, I would say this, whatever utopia, whatever progress that secularism is promising, it has yet to deliver. And just these three cursory examples, right, of tribalism, social division, economic inequality, seem to indicate that not only is secularism, um, not only is secularism not promising what it can deliver, it's actually 
regressing us some ways, right? The religion of secularism actually is blocking the ideas of secularism. You guys follow me on that? This is a little philosophical teaching. Let's switch to the Bible for a little bit. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Paul has a word about this. Um, And if you want to turn there, you can turn. I think it's on page 842. 822. Um, Paul has a word about this, and you can follow along in your Bible. I have a little different translation that I put up on the screen. I thought that was a little helpful. We're going to look at a few verses here. Good morning, Isan. There's a lot of text. So Paul says this. He says, don't let others spoil your faith and joy with their philosophies, their wrong and shallow answers built on men's thoughts and ideas instead of what Christ has said. Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, even more relevant today than it was back. I mean, again, it's just, right? Paul says, for in Christ, there is all of God in a human body. So you have everything when you have Christ. You live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. You have everything. And you are filled with God through your union with Christ. He is the highest ruler with authority over every other power. Since you died, as it were, with Christ, and this has set you free from following the world's ideas of how to be saved, right? What's secularism promising? Salvation. Utopia, right? By doing good and obeying various rules, why do you keep following on, following on them anyway, right? Paul's saying, this is the air that we breathe, but you don't have to breathe that literal air. You can breathe into the kingdom of God. You can breathe into the goodness of Jesus, right? Paul says that these rules, secularism may seem good, for rules of this kind require strong devotion and are humiliating and hard on the body, but they have no effect when it comes to conquering a person's evil thoughts and desires. Are you going for the juice? Is that what you're thirsty for? She's looking at me pointing. She's like, I'm out of here. I like those shoes. Are those new shoes, girl? Oh, they're hand-me-downs? She's got the Sunday shoes on. Um, They only, that last sentence, they only make them proud, right? So again, we read just Paul's kind of cursory examples here, right? And it's just Paul's basically saying, He's just speaking into, our, into the air that he breathed, right? And he's speaking into the air that we breathe, right? And we see these, these philosophies, shallow answers built on men's thoughts and ideas instead of what Christ has said. We simply turn to Christ. Um, and then Sarah goes in to say it like this. I thought this was one of the more important quotes of Sarah. Sarah says this. He says, what's happening is the secular story is actually beginning to have its moment of doubt, And I think there's a real opportunity there for the church. The gap between what the culture promises, what secularism promises, and what it delivers is getting bigger. I think we're going to see a lot of cultural Christianity burn off from the Western church. And I think that's already happening at different rates in different places. Uh, Again, he's from Australia. I know here in Australia that's happened already a lot. We think the church is done. There's this narrative like the church is regressing, denominations are dying, uh, things are falling apart. We think that the church is done. But what it means often is that this kind of idea of cultural Christianity is done. I'm less concerned now about amassing vast amounts of cultural Christians. My focus now is how do we find those remnants, what he calls 
wholehearted believers, right? And I think this is so important. I think this is a good opportunity because one of the things that, it's, that, that Sarah is saying, he said, look, secularism is having this moment of doubt. Like people, this progress that we've been offered doesn't seem to be as much progress as, as it's offering, right? Again, sometimes it feels kind of regressive, right? And then he says that in the midst of that, the church, maybe instead of the church trying to be relevant and trying to be hip and trying to be cool and trying to appeal to everyone, maybe what Sarah's is saying is that there's this opportunity to find remnants of wholehearted believers. Uh, Sarah so talks, talks so much about renewal or revival and that revival and renewal often happens when you have this group of wholehearted believers who are devoted to God in prayer and fasting in, in study, in, in community, right? And he says that's when you find those renewal moments, those revival moments. So let me just spend like f- a few more minutes talking about wholehearted believers. I, I love that, that little phrase that he used, wholehearted believers. And I think the kind of ideas for me as I was reading the, that kind of, those kind of Colossians passage, passages, Colossians 2 moves into Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 1 through 14, I think are some of the most important verses in the New Testament. I was challenged to memorize those, and I, I memorize them, and then they fall out of my memory, and then I re-memorize them, and then they fall out. This is some of the most important passages, I think. If you wanted to, if you wanted to like change your life, literally, if you wanted to change your life and memorize these 14, these 14 verses, I guarantee it would, and you just kept that on your mind. So, Go, go to Colossians 3. What does a wholehearted believer look like? <clears throat> Somebody read for me the first four verses. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So the first kind of movement I would say of a wholehearted believer, and I'm going to use some arrows here. I think, um, wrong way. I think they have a heart and mind that is focused like upward, right? A heart and mind that is focused upwards. What is Paul saying? Where is he saying we are to focus our minds, right? Focus your minds on Christ. Focus your hearts on Christ, right? Um, Focus everything on Christ. C.S. Lewis, one of the great, you guys know I love to quote me some C.S. Lewis. One of the great C.S. Lewis quotes from Mere Christianity. Brian probably could rattle this one off on the top of his head too. Uh, Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this, right? We were talking at our, the kind of midweek book study. Um, I think this might have been two weeks ago. We kind of live in an age, right? And I was trying to figure out, the, I saw this on a clip. We live in an age, for the most part, it, we, we live in the first age that people um, aren't excited about the next life, right? Like, there's not like this passion, like, oh, man, I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to be with him. I can't wait to have this, you know, I can't wait for the world to be healed and renewed. Partly because we just have it so good, right? We're just, life is just easy for us. Life is just happy for us, right? We, we, I mean, sure, we have the little struggles. There's traffic, and, you know, we have all these little things. But for the most part, not everybody, nobody's sitting around thinking, like, man, I cannot wait for the kingdom of heaven to break through into this world. 
right? And what is Lewis saying? He says, if you read history and you want to see those renewal, those revival moments, you will find a group of Christians who are so excited and have their heart and their mind, as Paul says, focused upward on the things above, right? Not on the earthly things, right? So I would say that one of the signs of a wholehearted believer is a heart and a mind that is focused upward. Um, the second thing, would somebody please read to, for me? Um, <clears throat> five through 11. Five through 11. Excellent. Thank you, Molly. The second part of this is this kind of downward error of this death to self, right? Is that as we're putting our hearts and minds and we're focusing on ourselves upward, we're, we're putting to death the old patterns that we have lived in, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, which is greed, evil desires, right? All those sorts of things are being put to death. Um, here's an example of that, or here's, here, here's a, a way to look at that. Uh, my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law, they're getting some work done on their house. Dustin, this would, this would be very relevant for you, too. You will resonate. This one is just going to hit home for you. And here's a picture of the front of their house, and you can see this giant ficus tree that's in front of their house. And they had this giant, the, the city came down and just said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll cut down that tree for you if you don't want it. But what happens, what's left is the stump and all the roots, right? So they had this tree cut down, which is nice. But then you have to go through and do all the hard work of removing the entire root system. Mr. Lucio helped take care of that, right? And you guys had that with your front tree and your back tree. You got to go in and you got to get the roots. What happens is, I think in life, is as, sometimes as Christians, we make that decision and say, God, I want to die to myself. You can have it all. You can, and, and Jesus comes in and he moves into our life. And in some senses, again, that kind of death to old self. The tree gets cut down, right? The process that is to remain for a follower of Jesus Christ is to go in then and remove the root system. This is the long and tedious and difficult work that it takes to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus. To look into the mirror and say, through prayer and through meditation, say, Jesus, what are the roots that are still down there in my life that we need to get rid of, right? And we have those, those insecurities, those fears, um, those, those moments of anger, stress, bitterness, um, the, all that kind of stuff is, is literally that hard. And I, I know Dustin, with your backyard, all the roots that he had to remove, I think with this one was another one, just massive amounts to be removed. It takes time, it takes sweat, it takes toil, it's not difficult, but this is the work. A lot of people are just happy to have their tree cut down and say, okay, we're good, and leave the giant stump there, right? A follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus, a wholehearted believer goes down and says, we got to get into those roots, right? we got to dig down into those roots. Next up, somebody read for me 12 and 13. 
God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Thank you. What is the one piece of clothing you put on every single day of your life? Don't be afraid to say it. Underwear. Underwear. Good. <laughs> I made this because I love this image that Paul gives us, right? He says, I want you to clothe yourself, right? And every day we clothe ourselves. And every day the one piece of clothing that we put on, for the most part, I'm assuming, if you don't put on underwear, keep that to yourself. Um, <laughs> but everybody, we just put on underwear every single day, right? For the most part, again, if not, that's... I, I just, this is just super simple. There's nothing special about it, and it is the official canary yellow of our church that <laughs> seems to be. Um, I just wrote down these words, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. And I just made these small cards, shove them in your underwear drawer, right? And each day when you get dressed, right, and you just, this is just sitting somewhere in there, and you just think to yourself, you know, today, my spouse, patience, Right? Today, that coworker that drives me nuts, kindness, compassion, right? Today, as I think of my children, love, right? Today, as I merge onto the freeway, humility, right? So again, Paul, I love this image, and I'm just using this circular arrow because we just do this every day. You take on clothes every day, you take off clothes every day. Paul says, clothe yourself with these things, right? As you die to yourself, as you pull out that old root system, what you will put on, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. Take one of these small pieces of paper. You didn't think you were going to talk about underwear in church today, did you? Put that in your underwear drawer and just think about that as you get dressed each day. God, what are you asking me? What are you inviting me to put on today? Right? What is this situation? What is required of me today? Where am I going? What meeting do I have to attend? What child's event am I going to? Um, who am I going to see today? What would you be inviting me to put on today? Clothe yourself, your new self, with these things. The last one, somebody read verses 15 through 17, the last sign of a wholehearted believer. 14, <clears throat> 14 through 17, thank you. Uh, yeah, that probably should have been with the previous one. I made a mistake. Okay, so I'll just read it. And yeah. over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And then 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. Am I going to? Oh, 17. Yep. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through him. This last piece of unity, it's just, it's just people getting, to get, getting along, right? If you look at the New Testament, if you look at Paul's writing, we've talked about this before, if you look at Paul's writing... The biggest theme, and this is when we did the one another series, series, is people getting along with one another. How do you get along? Like, how do you look at this person over here and say, "Man, that person voted for Trump. What are they thinking? 
Oh, that person's Democrat. What are they thinking? Oh, that person's of this race. Oh, that person's of this ideology. Or that person. And we look at one another and we just got to say, okay, we got to figure out how to get along in this thing, right? It's the biggest theme of the New Testament. There's neither Jew nor slave, Scythian nor barbarian, right? Uh, Gentile. We are all one in Christ Jesus, wholehearted believers, minds and hearts focused upwards. They're dying to their old self. They're pulling out the roots. They're clothing themselves with kindness, compassion, uh, goodness, gentleness, and love. And they are in unity. They are getting along with one another. The last thing, I just wanted to end with this quote, and I told you about this. Um, This is from a guy named Thomas Kelly. Um, Thomas Kelly talks about this. He says this. He says, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more, level, on more than one level at once. On one level, this is where we spend a lot of our time, we may be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we also may be in prayer and adoration song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. Kelly says, the secular world of today's values, uh, I think I messed that up a little, cultivates, or values, cultivates only the first level believing this is where the real business of mankind is done. I think I really butchered that sentence when I wrote that up, right? The secular world of today, it only values and cultivates the first level of believing This is where the real business of mankind is done. He says, but we know that the deep level of prayer is the most most important thing in the world. It is at this deep level that the real business of life is determined. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Minus me butchering it. Um, The real business of life is happening in prayer. Secularism says, ah, oh, the religious, the sacred, the, the divine, like that's all getting in the way, right? Kelly says, no, you have to understand and believe and trust that it's the deep level of prayer that where it's all, our, our, we're about, I think we're about halfway through these kind of 70 days of prayer as we started back in September. Um, and we're just going to say that this is the real business of life. It's day in and day out committing ourselves to prayer. That's the real business of life. And, and again, we have, to be, we have to have that anchored within our hearts and our minds and our souls to believe that, right? To really trust in that. Um, let me say a word of prayer and we'll do a little discussion. Lord, thank you that we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Um, it's been since you came. It's been always, it forever will be. Philosophies, thoughts, ideas, um, progress, advancement, political parties, economics. They're important. What's important is the kingdom of God and its fullness. What's important is wholehearted believers who take seriously the call to be a follower of you in this world. And so we look to that, Lord. We want to be serious, wholehearted believers in this world. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, A couple questions for reflection. Uh, how have you seen the subtraction story play, man, I'm struggling, play out, or play, man, come on, Williams. How have you seen the subtraction story play out in your life and relationships? 
share some examples of where you see the myth of progress being sold to our world? Do you see an example, or do you see any renewal or cultural Christianity being burnt off? Share an example. What arrow did you most resonate with and why? Obviously, we have the what, the why, the response. What stood out to you? Why might that be? And if you were to respond to that, you can feel free to respond to that. So um, if you can kind of battle your way through some of my bad grammar in these uh, reflection questions, uh, just take a few moments and think over those and talk to the person next to you, and then we'll have some, some group discussion.